0: Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. uh, With my uh, co-host Ernie Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, How good is Ernie, right? Right? Isn't he great? Ernie Raskin, great podcaster. Great podcaster, right? The best. I I, I, I think you're talking about Eric Raskin. Ah, Eric. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, I I know another another Ernie Raskin. He, he's 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 okay, but Eric Raskin. He he's still podcasting. Eric, um, how good is Eric? Right, the best, the best. Probably Mulvaney's most uh, dangerous podcast partner. I've never heard anything like
1: it. <sighs> <laughs> Here we are, Kieran.
0: <laughs> Here we are. Twenty twenty. Here we are. 75 or so days to go until November 3rd, he says. Apropos of nothing whatsoever, but there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, this week on the, it amuses us. That's it this this week on the podcast, uh, we have some really solid slates of fights to review. It's like the old times again. Uh, mm. And preview. Uh, we are opening up the listener mailbag for the first time in a little while, uh, and we have all sorts of news to discuss concerning Oscar DeLoya, Canelo Alvarez, and DAZN. As that situation's taken quite a few new twists and turns since we discussed it last week with Keith Idec. Uh, but we start with the home network. Uh, we've got a little Showtime news. ...to kick off the show. Uh, And the full undercard, or indeed undercards, if you will, for the September 26th pay-per-view event... ...co-headlined by the Charlo Twins has been announced. Uh, It is, as we discussed previously, it's a six-fight card with a planned half-hour intermission. Uh, So let's start with the first half, uh, which, as we already knew, is headlined by Jamal Charlo... ...defending his middleweight belt against Sergei Derevyanchenko. Uh, The two undercard fights... During the early portion of the card are Brandon Figueroa, undefeated 23-year-old super bantamweight prospect slash belt holder, uh, taking on Damian Vasquez, also 23 years old, a 15-1-1 southpaw who fights out of Las Vegas. That's scheduled for 12 rounds. And John Real a top bantamweight out of the Philippines, who scored a big KO3 over Zolani Tete last time out versus Duke Micah, 24-0 from Accra, Ghana, also scheduled for 12. Eric. What jumps out at you with these undercard fights?
1: Well, Casimiro versus Micah is undoubtedly the better of the two fights, and it's a really intriguing one. American fans probably aren't very familiar with Micah, even though his last four fights have been in the U.S., they haven't been on TV, they've been on club shows and off TV undercards. But he's a good fighter, he has a good amateur background, 2012 Olympian, and He applies pressure, he can punch with 19 KOs among his 24 wins, but this is a big step up for him. He should be the underdog against Casimiro, but it's close. This is just a really intriguing matchup on paper of a tested veteran against a less tested up-and-comer. Figueroa versus Vasquez, well, I like watching Figueroa fight. He seems to have a high ceiling. But he is still just a prospect, even if he's been navigated into an alphabet belt already. You know, hey, there, there are a dozen titles in each division. Somebody has to hold them, right? Uh, <laughs> so he has one, but he's a prospect, and he's being matched like a prospect here. On paper, Vasquez is a sizable underdog in this one. So if I'm being honest— that's a showcase fight, a chance to see a possible future star do his thing. But Casimiro Micah, that's potentially an excellent fight to build toward Charlo Uh And there are no showcase fights, in my opinion, on the second half of the card, which is headlined by a junior middleweight showdown between Jamel Charlo and Jason Rosario. The undercard bouts stay in that same weight range as the early undercards, a couple of very intriguing 12-rounders in the 122-pound division. We have Luis Neri, 30-0, moving up from Bantamweight to face Aaron Alameda, 25-0, both of them southpaws from Mexico. And we have Danny Roman, last seen in a terrific fight against Mirajan Akhmedaliev in January, possibly the fight of the year so far, facing Dominican veteran Juan Carlos Payano, interestingly the only man to hang a loss on Damian Vasquez to this point. So this strikes me as the stronger half of the undercard. Kieran, would you agree and what jumps out at you in these matchups?
0: Yeah, I would agree. Uh although not you know not by a huge amount which is meant not on a slate on this undercard but recognition I think of the fact that the first one is good as well. But um but yes, look, I agree with you we don't have a showcase fight here. Um Roman Payano should be an excellent you know, quality about. Um My opinion of Roman, which was pretty high anyway, actually went up with his defeat to Ahmed Aliyev. You know, I've, I've long been, you know, a conductor on the Akhmad Aliyev train. And, and I thought Roman gave very nearly as good as he got in that fight. He proved that he is you know, a match or at the very least an extremely tough out for just about everyone in that division. Uh, you know, in theory, you'd look at it on paper and you think that maybe he should have a bit too much for Paiano, who lost to Neri and was blown out in one round by no Inoue. But although he lost to Rashid Warren and his only other pro loss, you know, which suggests you look at that, you think, oh, maybe he falls short when he steps up to the top level. That was in a rematch to a bout in which he hung Warren's first defeat on him. And right. he's the only person to beat Mike Plania, who we recently saw upsetting Joshua Greer in the bubble, uh, he stopped Al Salmo Marino, who for the cup of coffee was all the hipsters up and coming choice um, for boxers you wanted to watch. Um, and as you mentioned, he beat Damian Vasquez. So he is at the very least an extremely live dog in this contest, but Neri Alameda is the Potentially very interesting one here. Look, Neri is unbeaten and he's been a destroyer, uh, including two knockout wins of Shinsuke Yamanaka that sent Yamanaka into retirement. But here's the big but always with Luis Neri. He was way overweight for the Yamanaka rematch. Yeah. Uh, to the extent that he was permanently banned by the Japanese Boxing Commission. Um, he was initially over when he met Payano, uh, and he was a pounder over when he was supposed to meet Emmanuel Rodriguez on the Wilder Ortiz two undercard, um, and then elected not to try and lose that weight, and so the fight fell through. So these, that's the baggage that Luis Nari carries, and perhaps being at 120 rather, two rather than at 118 will mean those days are in the past. Yeah, Alameda, also undefeated. Um, less known about him, this is only his second fight, outside of the United States. Uh, It's his first in the U.S. in a couple of years. He is a natural Super banham, Hmm. but he has basically the same height and reach as Luis Neri. Uh, this promises to be an extremely interesting battle of two undefeated southpaw Mexicans. Yeah.
1: And, and I'll just add, if I know Steven Espinoza with four fights on these undercards, all at 118 mm-hmm. or 122, that's entirely by design. And Showtime yep. and PBC will have a couple of additional 122 pounders on standby so that we get six fights on September 26, no matter what. Yeah. Um, in other news, Boy, there is a lot going on with the biggest star in boxing, Canelo Alvarez, his promoter, Oscar De La Hoya, and the streaming service they're currently tied to, DAZN. I'm not really sure where to begin, but I guess I should just run down all the news because it ties together to some extent. We talked last week with Keith Idek about how Canelo doesn't have an opponent yet. He won't be fighting in September. Now they're looking at late fall, but DAZN wants him to take a big pay cut and wants him to take on a viable opponent. When David Benavidez dropped his WBC 168-pound title on the scale last week, that belt became vacant, and surprise, surprise, the WBC decided Canelo should fight for it, and can do so against the non-contender he supposedly requested, Avni Yildirim. Uh, IDEC reported this week that DeZone will not pay for that fight, which makes sense, since Dezone didn't want Canelo versus Anthony Durrell either, and Durrell defeated Yildirim last year. So, as of now... No progress on whom Canelo will fight next and when, and the tension between Golden Boy and DAZN grows, and there was supposed to be a card this coming Friday on DAZN, headlined by Javier Fortuna, but Golden Boy couldn't find a suitable opponent for Fortuna after Jorge Linares dropped out, so now that whole broadcast is off, with DAZN reportedly being the ones to cancel it, or at least postpone it. Lastly, maybe this is related to his company needing to make some big fights, maybe not, but... Oscar De La Hoya at age 47 has said he wants to fight again, claiming he wants a real fight against a younger fighter, not a Tyson Jones style exhibition. So lots to break down here, Here, <laughs> Uh give me your thoughts and how confident are you right now that Canelo will fight someone in 2020?
0: Uh, right, not sure where to begin with all of this. <laughs> right. Um so yeah, look, I guess you team me up with the Canelo thing there. Let's let's start with him. Um so to ask that very last question, I honestly don't know right now. Uh, you know, 2020 is kind of filling up. Um, good available weekends for a big fight are for the fall and winter already sort of becoming a bit scarce. Yep. Um, there is some obvious, to put it mildly, as you said, tension and differences of opinion with the various different uh, uh, players here. Look, I mean, it feels to me almost, we talked with Keith Eidek about this last week, about how Canelo is also somebody you don't want to be on the wrong side of outside the ring either, because they're very good at doing what's best for them. Right. And it almost feels me, and I don't know if this is true. It almost feels like he asked to be ordered to face Alderim just to stick a finger up to the zone, right? right? It's just it all. He doesn't particularly care about the WBC. He's had his outs with the WBC as well recently. Uh, he doesn't care about them any more than he cares for Oscar. So I can't imagine like he's desperate to have another WBC belt for heaven's sake. He he doesn't need an alphabet belt. Um, it may be that he told his team to put in this request if he did indeed put in the request just to keep all his irons in the fire but I don't know what's going to happen with Canelo but I-, I cannot for a second believe that Canelo Alvarez is going to be pissed if he's not allowed to fight Avni it yeah, that's, that's that's a good take. Um, it would give me
1: great pleasure to believe that the WBC is being used as a pawn here by, by yeah. Canelo. <laughs> that, that would make me happy, because I, I don't know how anyone still takes the Alphabet group seriously in, in 2020. I don't know how they took them seriously 15, 18 years ago, but it's just so obvious here. It's it's all done right out in the open. They're not fooling anybody into thinking rankings and title shots are earned. It's all about getting some of that Canelo money. Um but yeah, he might be he might be trying to just uh, see see how far he can go in yeah. uh, toying with Dzone and, and requesting opponents that they're not going to want him to fight. I don't know how possible it is for Canelo or Dzone to break their contract, but it seems Dzone, by saying they don't want this, that they would rather lose Canelo than overpay for a total mismatch. And I can't blame them, you know, a, a fighter coming off a long layoff. Can get a soft touch. I'm cool with that. But this is too soft. It's unmarketable. Dazone is right
0: to refuse it, uh, I think, here. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's. Uh, On the other hand, they sort of need Canelo. Canelo is fully aware that he is their anchor, especially, you know, you've got Golovkin. They still want a third fight with Golovkin and Canelo, even though it appears that Gennady is clearly on the downslope and that that third fight, I think, is not going to be anything like what the first two were. And that makes it all the more important um, to, you know, to sort of keep Canelo. Canelo's fully aware of what his bargaining power is here, I think. Um, But at the same time, DAZN's like, hey man you want 30 million dollars for a fight um and we do have this contract so yeah these are two uh sides with a great deal of leverage over each other the one, the one side that doesn't seem to have a tremendous amount of leverage necessarily is the one in the middle golden boy but uh right. yeah i don't know talking of golden boys golly gosh Oscar. <laughs> um I, I don't know how long and hard oscar thought about this before he came out and said it or whether this was some you know late night spontaneity or or it's just the kind of thing oscar says stuff doesn't he um and i don't know if this was just one of those things or whether he has you know he's looked at tyson and he's looked mike tyson he's looked at roy jones evander holyfield's been posting images of him working out uh we'll talk later about sergio martinez um and he's thinking, man, I, I want some of that. Uh, and no matter who they are or how old they are, fighters never stop being fighters. And look, I, I don't even without looking at him in the last couple of weeks, I I can safely say Oscar Hoya is way, way, way out of fighting shape. And even at the very end of his pro career. He was barely in fighting shape. Um, right. His lifestyle was really sort of taking its toll on him. He barely got past the Forbes before Manny Pacquiao destroyed him. This is one situation where I would think that um, athletic commissions would probably come to our rescue a little bit here. I, I have a very hard time imagining, particularly given how profile it would be and, and, and what a big name Oscar De La Roya is and what big news it would be. If he were to get very badly hurt, I would cannot imagine California or Nevada actually letting this happen. Certainly not. Not necessarily saying you can't fight, but yeah, they're not going to put him allow him to fight anybody. Good. Um, I also doubt that this is something that anyone involved in this would want to do without fans. Right, Oscar. Right. An Oscar De La Hoya comeback has to be in front of 30,000 people, and by the time that fans are allowed, I would hope that. This is something he's gotten out of his system and has moved past. Yeah, so it's interesting you said that he's without having
1: necessarily seen him that he can't possibly be in fighting shape, and and that just underlines the difference between being in fighting shape and being you know in physically in shape and looking right. good. Um, I don't doubt that he is in great physical shape again. He's been working out, but you know. This is a guy who's had a lot of problems, so it just it makes me profoundly sad to even hear him talking about this. I mean, I don't doubt that he has the itch to fight; uh, that could be genuine. I doubt. Yeah. I don't doubt that the way his career ended against Manny Pacquiao gnaws at him. Um, sure. But. I, I do kind of question whether he's totally serious about this and intends to see it through. I think at least some percentage of this is a publicity stunt. Um, and if it's not, then his problems and his unhappiness run deeper than I realize. Yeah. But I, he cannot honestly believe that at 47, he can beat the best fighters in the world who are half his age. Um, but, you know, you hit on this with la- the, you know, maybe California, who is which is apparently allowing Tyson Jones, would allow Oscar to fight under the right circumstances against the right opponent. I think if it was a Legends tour, I could talk myself into being semi-okay with that. I saw our Showtime colleague, Raul Marquez, volunteer himself this week to fight his old Olympic teammate. Uh, So I could live with something like that. Neither of them are that likely to hurt the other badly. Um, As you you noted, Sergio Martinez, we'll be talking about uh, his comeback in a little bit here. But, you know, Oscar versus Sergio... Makes some sense and is probably a competitive matchup. If he wanted to do one or two of those kind of fights, I mean, I'm not looking forward to it, but it makes me cringe sure. a lot less than, say, Oscar versus Jamal Charlo or something. That's that's exactly. not fair. Um, but yeah, the the other option for Oscar that I could kind of deal with is a Bum's tour. And I know that's an insulting word, but you you know what I mean. Oscar versus a series of overmatched club fighters where he gets to score knockout wins, which I'm sure he still can against some real novices. Like, think of the very earliest stages of the George Foreman comeback. Guys like that, or maybe even a little worse than that. The problem is, and you touched on this, that sort of thing only makes sense if you can go from town to town packing arenas with thousands of fans looking to get that one last in-person glimpse at this iconic Hall of Fame fighter you can't do that right now. Um, and of course, those tours inevitably fall apart when suddenly one of the bums wins when, you know, Grover Wiley beats Julio Cesar Chavez. Right. Um, so I don't know. Ultimately, I don't think it all adds up. My money is on Oscar not actually fighting again. But I hate that he's acting serious enough about it to get reporters reporting it and that we in turn are here talking about it.
0: Indeed. Um, and, and yeah, and as for, you know, just his own going ahead and just canceling the uh, that entire card, uh, I think in this, in all the, the problems that we've had, you know, as we sort of try to emerge from lockdown, I think that's the first time that either side, be it promoter or broadcaster, instead of trying to couple something together, has said, you know what, screw it, and throwing their hands up a little bit. And that's kind of interesting. Like on the one hand, I feel like we're at the stage now where probably fans are ready for that. Like, having had that initial excitement at being able to watch anything, I think, you know, and again, we talked about this last week with Keith a little bit that probably fans are quite ready to watch nothing rather than something last minute and. Terribly one sided and overmatched. Right. Um, we're, we're at that stage of being satisfied already. So, but I think it also probably also speaks to where the zone is at in terms of finances and so forth, given that they're a subscription uh, uh, service that really relies on having live events right and if they can say nah this live event isn't good enough we're not going to have it that does kind of suggest that yeah they're they're feeling the pinch a little bit
1: right and it's you know it's the undercard fighters that i'm particularly feeling for here you know javier fortuna his fight falls out they'll reschedule it whatever that's been happening a lot on these cards that one guy's fight falls out but I just don't know what's going to be of the Golden Boy stable that they've got to get yep. these guys semi-active. They've been waiting and waiting and I don't know exactly who was scheduled on this undercard, but I assume there were 3 or 4 undercard fights, that's 6 or 8 fighters that now have have been yep. tr- training and preparing and there's no fight. So uh yeah, it's 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 not it's not great for anyone involved to have to scrap
0: that card. Indeed. Uh, we do have one last news item, though, which is about uh, a pair of fighters who are definitely not past it, very much in their prime. And rather than a cancellation, it looks like it is a done deal. Uh, the Athletics' Lance Pugmire reporting that Miguel Burchelt against Oscar Valdez is almost finalized for November 7th, which would take place at the MGM Grand in that aforementioned top Rank bubble. Uh, we will discuss that more when it does get finalized or as it draws near. But a couple of months out how pumped are you for that one? Yeah, now here's an Oscar in a
1: fight that I want to see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tremendous fight. Uh, either guy can win, al- although my early instinct is to favor Burchelt. But uh, but more than that, more than the competitiveness, what stands out is just how close to a sure thing it is from an action perspective. I feel like Oscar Valdez might be developing into a poor man's Eric Morales, you know, the guy who has skills, but yeah. uses them intermittently and and simply is not capable of making a bad fight. I very much hope this fight does get done. It will make Tyson Jones and De Delahoya come back talk and and no Canelo fight. It will make all the crappy news much more palatable. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Enough about what's been going on outside the ring. Let's dig into what happened inside the ring this past weekend and We have to start with the big boys in London, the heavyweights, and a stunning one-punch knockout, 40-year-old Alexander Povetkin down twice in round four, delivering a single left uppercut in round five to knock Dillian White down and out. The result, Povetkin winning, was not that shocking, not a huge upset, but by the time that it happened, it was shocking. By the end of round four, I assumed the fight was over. White had it in the bag. I had given up on Povetkin. And then came what I would say, given the situation and the stakes, is the new leader in the clubhouse for knockout of the year. Kieran, do you agree? And walk me through your thoughts watching this unfold.
0: Yeah, I think it's just the other week that we uh, uh, had put Joe George in front in the KO of the year stakes, wasn't it? (laughs) Um, But Pvyatkin's blown into the lead here uh, and is going to take some stopping. Um, this was one of those knockouts that was like really deeply visceral in its impact, I think uh-huh. for everyone who watched it. Um, I certainly let out an involuntary exc- exclamation uh when i when I saw it um and it was visceral really like for so many reasons. um you know, just the nature and the power and the you know how emphatic that knockout was for me, it was amazing watching the replay. It was one of those things where, when you see it in slow mo, you see it's almost like the light goes out in Billy yes. White's eyes. Isn't that wasn't that weird? Yeah, you see that it was just like, oh, he's gone as soon as that punch landed. That was an amazing thing to see. Uh, um, and you know, it, it was visceral because you know that's never happened to White before. Um, the, the fact that he entered this contest probably at worst the number four heavyweight in the world. The fact that he was positioned to fight Fury if he won, and like you said. The fact that he appeared to be well on course to win um, right after the fourth round, you know, I was writing notes that reflected the fact that I was writing, gosh, you know, white's fighting as well as I seen him. You know, uh, the I was noting what I was expecting to be the narrative when we discussed this, that although for a long period, the consensus was that, sure, you know, white gave Joshua, Anthony Joshua a tough time in spots when they first met, but AJ's improved a lot since now. The, it's now. F- it was feeling to me at that point as if the narrative was changing a little bit, and that Dillian White was closing the gap again. Right. Um, you know, I was making notes about how finally Pavetkin's long career appeared to be winding down, that he just still couldn't quite do it anymore. A- and then came that Thunderbolt, and that was not. You know, I think there's Breadman the other week said so there's no such thing as a lucky punch, and this was the definition of that because. Even if he hadn't been landing it super effectively, Pavetkin had been trying to land that left hook to the body quite a bit. And he, he sucked Dillian White into thinking there was another left hook to the body coming. And he turned it into an uppercut at the last minute. And bam, he planned that punch. And he was able to execute it just perfectly. That was fantastic work in the end there by Alexander Povetkin. I, I have to, that was, that was shocking, Definitely. Yeah. Um, he, he he might have planned it, but I'll say this: even if it wasn't
1: planned, that was twenty-something years in boxing of instinct of knowing absolutely. how to how to throw a punch and set up 100%. the next punch and take advantage of an opening. And uh, uh, yeah, so e- either way, it was definitely not a lucky punch. Exactly. Um,
0: so Eddie Hearn, who was also clearly in shock afterward, um, said that. Uh, you know, Dillian White will activate his rematch clause. Um, I'm sure White said that before he'd even looked at the, the footage or had the faintest idea what it happened to him. Right. Um, is that what you want to see? Is that what's best for fight fans, an immediate rematch? Or would you prefer Pavetkin against someone else next? There are so
1: many heavyweights that I wouldn't mind learning something about, and Povetkin Mm. is the guy who tells us where they stand. Um, So like Otto Valin, we were just discussing last week that we want to see him against someone in between Travis Kaufman and Tyson Fury. I think Povetkin is a perfect guy to tell us how good Valin is. Mm. I also think Povetkin versus Andy Ruiz would be intriguing. Povetkin, Luis Ortiz is a great matchup between a still viable 40-year-old and a still viable 60-year-old. Uh, had to do it. <laughs> <Had> to. <laughs> no, a, a 40-year-old and a guy who may or may not also be right around 40. Um, but lots of options for Povetkin. But, um, like, I, I don't know that he merits inclusion in the Fury-Joshua Wilder round robin. He already lost to Joshua. So maybe a rematch with White is about as big as any fight for him is going to be. So so I say, why not? I, I'm good with any of the options I just mentioned. But if White makes Povetkin the most dollars, he may as well go right. with that. Right, yeah. Um, In the co-feature on that zone card from what they're calling Matchroom Square Garden, I like that, um, we saw a different kind of brutal violence. Top female lightweights, Katie Taylor and Delphine Persoon in a rematch, making each other almost unrecognizable, especially Persoon. She was an absolute mess at the end of 10 rounds, while Taylor had herself a nice hematoma going on her forehead, uh, like their first fight. It was close and hard fought, and like their first fight, Taylor got the decision, this time by scores of 96-94, 96-94, and 98-93. I had it 95-95 myself, but if I had to pick a winner, I'd lean Taylor, who moved well and did just enough to hold off the awkwardly relentless Pursune. Kieran, how did you score it, and uh, where would you like to see Katie Taylor go from here?
0: I had it 96-94, Taylor. I thought 95-95 would have been absolutely fine, and I was half expecting that Mm. as a score, to be honest. Uh, 96-94 for Delphine-Person would have been a stretch, but not impossible. So there were a couple of very difficult-to-score rounds, and actually several very difficult-to-score These two-minute rounds, rounds, they they, they make it that much harder. They sure do. Um, One score that was not acceptable was 98-93, and it really does feel as if, post lockdown we're seeing a lot of terrible cards (laughs) yeah Uh, we talked about this before already and we just obviously had a long discussion about it last week but goodness me um look i I thought for the first few rounds or at least three of the first four taylor was boxing (coughs) as well as i'd seen her in some time she was boxing much more smartly than in the first bout she was showing some nice fast combinations and then pivoting but gosh personal is relentless she's Mm -hmm. sort of like a a poor woman, Sean Porter, right? She ah, just yeah. keeps coming at you and just throwing stuff from all kinds of angles. There's nothing particularly finesse about it, but she's incredibly strong, clearly. It's very hard not to be dragged into a brutal brawl with her, and and that's ultimately what happened. I thought by the end of eight rounds, Persona had evened it up. Um, but personally, I thought that Taylor turned it on enough to take – those final two rounds and to sneak the win she got back to enough of the boxing i thought um and there were no complaints it should be said from delphine person afterwards unlike with the first fight um so look there have been i heard some whispers in the british fight game for a while now that maybe taylor's passed her peak maybe she actually even peaked in the amateurs but this was a good performance um against a legitimately very strong and difficult opponent um uh, as for what's next Uh, She does have a mandatory in the form of Chantelle Cameron, who's undefeated, and she's British, so that would surely be a big fight. Mm. Uh, Natasha Jonas, whom uh, Taylor beat in the Olympics, who had a tough draw with Terry Harper— at Matchroom Square Garden uh, just the other week is another option. Um, Of course, Taylor's already beaten Jessica McCaskill once, but after McCaskill's win over Cecilia Bracus, that now presents itself as far more remarkable rematch than it would have been two weeks ago. I I guess a lot depends on whether Bracus does step away from the game or given the opportunity to reflect and spend some time with her family. uh, In liquor wounds, she decides to seek revenge over McCaskill or not. But, of course, if Taylor does move up to Welterweight, where McCaskill and Bracus reside, Clarissa Shields has said she would go all the way down to 147 to meet her. And once upon a time, like even like a little over a year ago, I would have thought that was impossible. But after seeing Clarissa go from 168 to 160 to 154 right. and seemingly get better along the way, I wouldn't bet against it. Um, ultimately, it feels like that is the super fight to be made in women's boxing right now. And if that could happen in 2021, I think that would be massive.
1: Yeah, I mean, right. There's a question of can Clarissa get all the way down there? And if so, can she get down there and not be completely drained? Um, if Clarissa is Clarissa at 147, I kind of feel like that's a bridge too far for Katie Taylor yep. now. But uh, but it certainly would be marketable. And yeah, like I say, that's, that's the super fight if somehow weight-wise it works
0: out exactly um on the other side of the pond and continuing west past the shores of the pond across (laughs) the mississippi and over the rockies at the mgm bubble (laughs) in las vegas uh we got still more brutal violence on saturday uh what looked like an even fight on paper uh we were discussing last week about what an even fight this looked like uh between top 10 light heavyweight contenders joe smith jr and elador alvarez started competitively for a couple of rounds uh before it turned into an ass-kicking in Smith's favor. Um, in round nine, Smith knocked Alvarez down, and halfway through the ropes, he couldn't quite make it all the way up before referee Tony Weeks reached the count of ten. So, Smith now adds Elidor Alvarez to a list of KO victims that includes Bernard Hopkins, and again, Smith getting his own little, like, genre here of knocking his opponent <laughs> yep. through the ropes, uh, Andrew Von Farah and Jesse Hart. I'll tell you what, like, Joe Smith, man, he just feels like he's consistently underrated, and maybe that's because there's nothing fancy about his fighting style or there's nothing really fancy about his personality but he is boy the whole phrase like lunch pail fighter is overused but lord have mercy joe smith jr is the lunch pail fighter and he just keeps stepping up and at the very least proving competitive and at best beating these other very solid light heavyweights um Eric, how does Smith pull this one off and, and, and play matchmaker here? Who do you want to see him in with next? You know, he might have a lunch pail inside of his glove. That would help explain things <laughs> if there's
1: like the metal lunch pail in there. You know, I'm not accusing him of loading his gloves, but uh, I can't rule it out. Um, Smith pulled this off by being Joe Smith Jr. Um, yeah. I I know he said afterward that he showed his boxing skills in this fight. Uh, Okay. That's not what I saw. Um, He won this fight through brute force. This was one puncher using brute force against another puncher who was trying to implement his power in more clever manners. And the straight ahead gunslinging approach worked. Alvarez had his moments. His more patient approach was not ineffective, particularly in round seven. He landed that counter right that made Smith's legs buckle. But Smith had the right combination of power, chin, and confidence to get it done. He had to be willing to take one to land one on occasion, uh, and he was willing to do that, and that allowed him to then have moments where he would take zero and land four. Um, And really, he was in control from like the third round on. He got Alvarez good and bloody. What an impressive performance. Probably Smith's most all-around impressive and complete win yet, now they're talking about him fighting the winner of Maxim Vlasov versus Umar Salomov for an alphabet belt. Eh, what, whatever. Uh, there, there are a lot of tremendous fights to be made at 175 without letting the sanctioning bodies dictate which random guy you fight. I think Smith loses to Artur Beterbiev, but I wouldn't mind seeing him try. Um, mm-hmm. And here's one that really f- intrigues me. If David Benavidez decides he's done making 168 pounds, I think that's a fascinating test at 175. I agree. Um, At the same time that ESPN Plus card was going on, Fox had a live card headlined by Sean Porter versus Sebastian Formella. And while Formella put up more resistance than most people expected and lasted the 12-round distance— he didn't win a single round on any judge's scorecard, Porter prevailing by three scores of 120 to 108. And on that undercard, a battle of Showbox alums, Sebastian Fundora and Nathaniel Gallimore ended up surprisingly one-sided in Fundora's favor, the skinniest man in boxing, <laughs> winning by sixth round stoppage. Kieran, how impressed were you with either Porter or Fundora?
0: Yeah, Porter looked really good to me. I mean, he was in a different class, as he said, you know, to Formella. obviously, full credit. Um, to follow up from what you said, to Formella for being obviously an extremely tough guy, because uh, Porter was beating him to the body, especially uh, all, all night. Uh, poor Formella's going to be peeing blood all the way home to Germany. Um, <laughs> there, there were elements of that fight that were classic Sean Porter for better and for worse. Um, you know, effective aggression suddenly yielding to sloppy aggression and then back again. You know, there were times where he did a terrible job of judging the distance and he'd either fall way short with a power punch from outside or be way too close and fall in on formula um while, while throwing but there were other times where i thought we set up his power with a skill we see from him not enough, uh, you know, when he, you know, he jabbed his way in, where he got the distance just right, where the combinations were really well thought out, um, where he looked the epitome of a, of a powerful boxer puncher. Um, he, he definitely did himself no harm with that performance last night. Yeah, Formella was what he was, and and he was there for an op- to be an opponent and for Porter to work on some things, but... Um, you know, Sean Porter is just another guy who's just consistently solid and consistently good. And he's going to keep getting himself opportunities at the very top of that welterweight division. Um, but I thought that the, the, the night's real winner, making sure that Sebastian's went one and one on the night, um, <laughs> was Fandora. Um, look, Nathaniel Gallimore has been in with a lot of top guys. He hung a loss on Jason Rosario. He went the distance in losing efforts to Ericson Lubin and Julian Williams. No one has beaten him up uh like that. Look, on the one hand, there was nothing especially fancy about when for what Fondora did, he just pounded on Gallimore um for five and a half rounds, especially after the first couple of rounds were gone. Like from about round three onward, um he was clearly dominant. Um, but it, he gave a wonderful example of how to use your height. Um, look, as we know and as we've discussed before, um Fondora, although a junior middleweight is actually 18 feet tall. And although he tends <laughs> You know, despite that height, and again, we've talked about this before, you know, when we had him on Showbox, you know, he he can, has a tendency to put his head down and get into close range battles. And you think, my God, you're that tall. Why are you doing that? He showed on Saturday how to get into a fight while still maximizing your height advantages. He used that straight left to keep Gallimore at just the right distance. And then he repeatedly took just a half step forward and turned that left into an uppercut over and over, which is exactly the punch you want when you're actually a 6'6 junior middleweight. Um... I thought brilliant execution all night. Uh, I, I think it is safe to say we will not be seeing Sebastian Fandora on Showbox again. This was a uh this was a real coming out party for him, I thought. Mm. Um last fight of the weekend, we touched on it already. We ought to mention it again. I am reluctant to do so, um, and I'm sure you are too, even though we have mentioned it, for all the reasons that we talked about with Oscar DeLoya. Yep. 45-year-old Sergio Martinez returned to the ring, dropped and stopped Jose Miguel Fandino in seven rounds. <sighs> I didn't watch it. Uh, did you? Could you bring yourself to do it?
1: Nope. Nope. I sure couldn't. Uh, I could bring myself to watch a clip on Twitter of the ending. Uh, Fandino obviously isn't much. He can be part of the De La Jolla unretirement right. tour if there is one. Um, but my assumption with this Sergio comeback is that it lasts until he fights a real opponent or his knees give out again, whichever comes first. I'd like to believe he just wanted to go out on a winning note and he'll be one and done, but. That's not usually the way these things work. No. Uh, coming off that busy weekend of fights, we have another fairly busy week ahead, and there's a clear main event of the slate. It's on ESPN Plus on Saturday from the MGM bubble in Las Vegas. Jose Ramirez versus Victor Postal for a couple of belts at 140 pounds. This was the first major fight to get postponed by COVID when it was scheduled to take place in China in January, so they moved it to the U.S. in the spring, and it got postponed again. Uh, but now, hopefully, it's on, and it pits two of the best in the division against each other. Most people would agree Josh Taylor is the man to beat right now, but Ramirez isn't far behind him, and postal is surely top five. Kieran, how live an underdog here is postal?
0: yeah he's definitely live um look he's the dog clearly uh, um against most other 140 pounders though he'd be you know probably at worst even up um you know the problem with postal is that he's rarely with you know with occasional stopp- exceptions like a stoppage of Lucas Matisse he's he's rarely seems to have much of a second gear right if he's able to suck you into his pace and distance you're in trouble but if you're good enough and you're versatile enough like Terence Crawford was and as Josh Taylor was then he isn't likely to be able to come back at you uh, the other problem with Postal is his inactivity you know since losing to Crawford in 2016 he fought once in 2017 twice in 2018 once in 2019 and of course through no fault of his own not at all in 2020 and for you know for a guy who relies on getting his timing and distance just right i think that's that's problematic and in that stretch taylor is the only world-class opponent he's met um look uh, ramirez taylor has a feeling of inevitability about it and that this is it feels as if this is a big step forward for ramirez in that but it's a dangerous one um Mm. if ramirez isn't quite on his game um a points win for postol or for some reason I have in my head this image of a technical decision TKO win because of a cut in favor of Pustol. That's not impossible to picture. Uh, you know, Ramirez is the favorite, but he's going to have to be on his game. Agree. Uh, there are three other televised or streaming cards this week. On Saturday from Los Angeles on Fox, Landy Lara meets Greg Vendetti. And one-time podcast guest Caleb Truax takes on Alfredo Angulo uh, earlier in the day from London on ESPN+. Plus. Our favorite Daniel Dubois gets in his tune-up for a Joe Joyce fight against late sub Ricardo Schneiders. And on a rare midweek fight on August 26th, uh, Townsville, Australia, again on ESPN+, Plus. a major fight in the land down under, veteran Jeff Horn against undefeated prospect Tim Zhu. Uh, Eric, any appointment viewing among those options?
1: I actually might categorize Horn versus Zoo as appointment viewing. Uh, I think it's going to happen at like 5 or 6 a.m. on the East Coast, Uh, but I'm sure I'll be up because my body clock is an absolute (laughs) prick. Uh, I want to see that. That's a really interesting crossroads fight. Horn is a slight underdog, according to the books. We'll get a sense of how good Tim Zoo is or isn't here. The rest of the fights, meh. I, I like true axe, but that's offset by how little I want to see Angulo keep fighting. Um, Lara Vendetti, I can barely bring myself to make a terrible dad joke about how for Vendetti, every fight is a grudge match. <laughs> barely.
0: Barely bring it myself. That's all right. That's, well, that's all right. Karen doesn't hate it. Yes, It's not
1: good, but no, it's not awful. You saying it's not awful is a victory. I'll take it. <laughs> Um, uh, then Daniel Dubois there's some intrigue there to see whether it's a KO1 or a KO2 I suppose (laughs) alright let's bring on our guest the listeners Uh, to wrap up the show we will take a dip into the mailbag Uh, thanks as always for your questions sent with the hashtag askshowpod and we start with a good tweet from Daniel Broda who asked us 160 to 175 who wins a death match? Would say Better Biev is favorite, just ahead of Canelo, Callum Smith, a big dark horse, though. Um, and we can assume Daniel is either British or Canadian based on his spelling of favorite. He put the U in there. Um, I don't love his wording calling it a death match, uh, but I like the question otherwise. So, Kieran, there's a big tournament with a weight limit of 175 pounds. Anyone from 160 to 175 is invited. Who emerges?
0: So, I think my eight person tournament consists of Canelo, Alvarez, Arta Beterbiev, Dmitry Bivol, Joe Smith. If he was on the bubble beforehand, he's forced <laughs> his in way now. into that. Yep. <laughs> uh, Callum Smith, Caleb Plant, David Benavidez, and Jamal Charlo. Uh, I'm not including Gennady Golovkin because he's a little long in the tooth, mm-hmm. I think, at this point. And I don't think he'd be competitive against, at this stage against natural super middles or light heavyweights. I'm not including Sergei Kovalev, tooth length. Yes. Um etc. <laughs> and he's still got his legal issues to address. Um but that's a really sort of group. And however it's seeded and I didn't go into that much depth. There's only so right. much work to put in here. Um I agree with Daniel that the two most likely to emerge would be Canelo and Bedabiev. Um it would be an unbelievable matchup. Uh we've talked about it before as a dream matchup. Um Bedabiev's power and strength surely see him. I think start as a favorite for that, but he can be here. You know, he was hurt and dropped by Callum Johnson, of course, who's admittedly a beast of a fighter. And Canelo's defense, as we've talked about many, many times, is exceptional. uh, As is his chin. Um, So I see Canelo having to suck up an early onslaught from Bedabiev, maybe taking a lot more damage than even he's used to. But Tiring him out in the process. And I think Canelo Alvarez comes back and stops Arta of late. Wow. To take the victory. Oh, bold. All right. I
1: I, I would have gone better Biev, but I do see Canelo and Bivol as live underdogs. And I wouldn't totally rule out a Benavidez or a Callum Smith. Or, of course... Joe Smith has a chance if, if he avoids Bevel in the draw. We know that's a bad exactly. matchup for him. And the only name that uh, didn't make your tournament that I guess uh, might feel slighted is Demetrius Andrade. He could be a problem for some people, but I wouldn't see. I him. wanted to I wouldn't see him excited. winning the thing. Yes, I that's, specifically
0: uh, left out okay. Andrade for that reason. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, no offense to the, I, I like Demetrius, nice dude, but. but still. All right, uh, next up, a question from frequent mailbagger, David Cushion. I have to ask you this question instead of you asking it of me, because as I have mentioned in the past, I have not seen the Rocky sequels. So here goes from David. Guys, very important question. Clubber Lang versus Ivan Drago. Who wins and how? I have to go with Drago by mid-round stoppage. Clubber had a solid chin, but I don't think he could withstand Drago's power and pressure for more than five or six rounds. My subsequent question is, does he die? <laughs> D- does does Clubber die? That's
1: what you're asking. Uh, I hope not. Uh, we've we've had enough tragedy in the Rocky films. Um, uh, but yes, you you expose your uh, lack of sequel knowledge by pronouncing it Drago when most pronounce it Draco. But uh, <laughs> um, I think David's assessment is about right here. Clubber Lang was the weakest fighter of the major Rocky opponents from the first four movies. Uh, he uh, he he got uh, stopped in short order in in the rematch with Rocky. He only won the first time because Rocky was distracted by Mickey dying and was unmotivated in general. Once he got the Eye of the Tiger back, Clubber had no chance. I've said many times Rocky 3, easily the most overrated Rocky movie. It's the movie that moved the franchise into schlock.
0: Um,
1: The Thunderlip scene, The Hulk Hogan scene is one of the worst things ever committed to film. Um, There is some good unintentional comedy in this movie, but I think Rocky IV actually does the schlock and the unintentional comedy better. Uh, Rocky III is trash. If you like it, it's because you liked it in 1983 when you were a kid and you can't see it for what it really is. So no way am I picking the Rocky III villain to win. I'll go Drago, KO4, too big, too strong, too many steroids. (laughs) um the next one comes from my longtime twitter friend bradley at free roll for life who writes discussion about big potential fights can be tedious as boxing waits too long benavidez plant feels different we could actually get this one timely does weight harm benavidez parentheses drain slash miss weight can benavidez force an okay corral shootout by getting plant to the ropes clever wording there to appeal to kieran um He continues, This one seems made for late drama. Plant's movement should trouble anyone early. Benavidez's well-timed long jab, energy, and effective pressure seem destined to force Plant to have to stand his ground at times later in the fight. Do
0: we actually get this one, and how does it go? So when I... Um, We're starting to do like on camera interviews. I remember Dave Harmon giving me advice, which is basically keep your questions short (laughs) and open ended. Don't answer the question for your interviewee. Don't give them the chance to just say yes. So Bradley, yes. (laughs) um uh, major points for working in the tombstone reference look the scenario of the fight that that you present is part of what makes this so appealing uh you know plants boxing skills uh, against benavides is straight up aggression and that would be the question right would benavides be able to track him down and cut off the ring would he be able to put him against the ropes and start teeing him off could you know caleb plant stop him from doing that for 12 full rounds uh, the other factor that you don't touch on that makes it so compelling is that these two men appear to genuinely hate each other with the heat of a thousand suns um mentioning Benavidez's name and we were sitting with caleb plant and the mgm grand media room last year earned us the first of several caleb plant death stares <laughs> in the course of the interview um and, I, and that's not just hype that appears to be a visceral legitimate distaste i think particularly from plant towards benavidez um the promotional politics are such that this is a very makeable fight. Um, I don't think it will be makeable in, 20, well, it's in 2020. Again, yeah. I was talking earlier about how, you know, with so much ground to make up that the fall fight schedule is already getting kind of packed in terms yeah. of like the big fights, um, you know, uh, it, but it could well be a, a late winter, early spring 2021 fight. Um, but, so also get back to another one of Bradley's points it would need to happen sooner rather than later I think because yes otherwise you have to figure Benavides is surely simply going to outgrow the division um unless you know he he takes on board the lessons uh, from his last fight you know he talked he did, he did admit responsibility to some extent you know that, it, that maybe he hadn't been following a diet properly and so forth maybe he does a better job of keeping himself um closer to his weight maybe he's more dedicated with his diet maybe if we're still in this same situation um by the time this fight comes around he will take account of the fact that he's not able to use a sauna or during fight week or he's not able to use the gym so often so um that said even if he, he he starts being a bit more dedicated and responsible in that regard Inevitably, at some stage, it feels like just looking at his frame, David Benavides is going to wind up at 175, so you'd want to see it sooner rather than later. But everything about this fight, the, the backstory, the clash in styles, the level of skill and talent of both guys, the, the relentlessness of both guys, um, makes this an incredibly compelling matchup. Um, I would love for this matchup to be made. Um, here is a question from Charlie B., Who just gives no further information about his uh, his surname? Uh, A Wendy could be a her. Yeah, good point. Yeah, right. So So. there you go. Uh, As far as I know, uh, neither of you write about box write about boxing much. There's the emphasis. Write about boxing much anymore. Is that by choice? Do you prefer podcasting? Do you miss writing about the sport?
1: Well, speaking only for myself, I still write about boxing occasionally. I do four columns a year for Ringside Seat magazine. I've written one feature for them. I did write something for The Ring recently. But yeah, I'm almost retired from boxing writing. I used to do about 75 bylines a year. Now I'm at like five or six. (laughs) And it's mostly by choice for me. In media, for the most part, the harder it is to do, the less it pays. Uh, writing yeah. is a lot of work. you know. TV is a teeny tiny fraction of that work for exponentially more money, and podcasting is somewhere in the middle. Um, we put a lot of work into this show, but it's nothing like writing an article where if you're a prideful writer... You agonize yeah. over almost every word. Uh, now, the more work something requires, the more rewarding it is. When I finish polishing an article, if I feel I did a good job, there's a real sense of accomplishment. Uh, I have to admit, I don't feel accomplished when we finish recording a podcast. Um, <laughs> maybe a big oral history podcast that I spent 100 hours on, sure. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm at a phase of my life where I want to spend about five, six, seven hours a week doing side work and as long as I can get paid to spend that time podcasting, I'll take that over writing. Do I miss writing about boxing? Um, well, I I do have my column in Ringside Seat, so I don't you know that that helps a little. And the other thing I have is Twitter, uh, which is it's not exactly writing, but it's an outlet. Um, so no, I, I don't really miss writing about boxing. It's a it's a lot of work and. The less often you do it, the harder it is to get revved up yes. each time you do do it. Um, so, uh, no, I'm, I'm quite content to identify primarily as a boxing podcaster. Writing is something that you do until somebody is willing to pay you to do something easier.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, I'm, I'm very much with you. Actually, your uh, five or six boxing bylines a year are five or six more than <laughs> nine right now, and you tweet more often than I do. So, right. um, you know, I enjoyed... Being on the beat, um, but I, you know, I both loved and loathed when I was doing deadline reports from ringside. Yeah, um, God that's hard yeah I, and, I, and, I, I i only loathe that i have no love for deadline reports okay yeah. <laughs> okay like it was be when i nailed it i'd be like "Ah, oh, that's fantastic right. but gosh i nailed it so rarely lordy that's that's <laughs> that's tough um i i somewhat miss doing the um uh the behind the scenes sort of in camp features that i used to do and mm, you know I'll yeah. hold <laughs> take photographs that, that's, that was fun but um yeah look i spent you know I really haven't been primarily a boxing writer for, well, since we we were together at HBO. And I very soon realized um, writing words is for the birds. (laughs) If you can get paid to speak words in whatever capacity, it's a much better situation. I guess if I really wanted, look, if the opportunity came up, I would absolutely think about it. Uh, And if I really wanted to write some boxing features, I could reach out to like our friend Matt Christie at Boxing News. Um, But. It's not that I'm not writing like you in the same way that you're, it's not like you're not writing. Right. Um, I'm doing a lot of writing. I'm writing about the Arctic. I'm writing about climate change. Um, I'm presently writing a book about the New England Aquarium. I just signed a contract to write a book about the Arctic. And like all writing, at the end of every day, I generally think that I suck and I'm terrible. <laughs> and why am I doing this? And it's, it's whatever you're writing about that's often a consideration and so I might as well just feel that way about some subjects and and not about boxing as well so yeah if the opportunity came up I'd certainly think about it but if it doesn't life goes on and I'm very happy actually doing podcasting well I sure
1: hope the people who are paying you to write a book aren't listening to this podcast as oh, you announced that you suck oh they ask. know you suck okay
0: oh they know that I think I suck
1: okay all right <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's get to our last question of the week. It comes from Brett Howard. Uh short and to the point. Brett asks, What are the best three weight classes in boxing right now? He didn't ask for a one, two, three ranking, just what are the three best, but you can rank them if you want. What do you think, Kieran? Okay,
0: so I actually, you know, had a scan through various divisional rankings, and the first thing was I actually found myself pleasantly surprised at the depth that we have in a number yeah. of weight classes like in terms of talent the sport's in a really healthy place right now i think and it sort of took to actually sitting down and looking at that to remind myself of that um i was actually slightly surprised to find that in my opinion after looking through those one of the top three right now is heavyweight you know i mean obviously we talk about the big three well, the big two and a half um <laughs> you know in in that division but look when you when your glamour division can boast in its top 10 not just anthony joshua and tyson fury and deontay wilder but Luis ortiz and dillian white and alexander pavetkin and joseph parker and the wild card alexander usick and then up-and-comers like daniel dubois and guys on the fringes like andy ruiz jr okay it ain't Ali, Foreman, Frazier, Lyle, Young, and Norton, but it isn't shabby at all. Right. Um, And Saturday night was a reminder of why we love those big guys. It isn't the only division that can see one-punch KOs like that, but lordy, when a 220-pound man hits another 220-pound man on the chin like that, that's really the epitome of why people are drawn to boxing. So... I looked at that depth and, you know, and we talked about it earlier, like there are some good mixes and matches that we could make there. I didn't even mention Otto Wallin. Um, So, yeah, heavyweight might be one of them for me. A welterweight has to be another. Yeah. Um, as we discussed the other week, when you can get down to number seven or so on your list before you hit Danny Garcia, you've got a deep division. Um, okay. Neither Manny Pacquiao nor Keith Thurman are what they were, but again, we as, we still got Sean Porter. Virgil Ortiz Jr. is coming up fast on the rails, and he's going to be a stud. Uh, And then at the top, you've got probably two of the four or five best pound-for-pound in the world, and Errol Spence and and Terrence Crawford. Um, So those were two. The third was hard. Um, Light heavyweight is strong, as we've discussed. Super middleweight is strong. Whichever is stronger depends to a large extent on where Canelo decides to make his home. And by the same token, middleweight improves if he elects to camp out there again. Junior welterweight is strong, lightweight is strong. But I'm gonna go with Bantamweight. Um, where right now you have Noya way, Nordin Ubali, Nanito Danaya, Luis Neri, Guillermo Rigandau, John Riel Casimiro, Mike Planiar, Emmanuel Rodriguez, names that we've mentioned already. Uh-huh. Um yeah, I think I'd put that third. Um so heavy, welter, bantam, but honorable mentions for 35. I didn't even mention 135, but you got Vasily Lomachenko and Tiafimo Lopez. 140, right. 168, 175, honorable mentions for them all. It's not a bad time for the sport. We've got some really good matchups to be made and some real talent out there right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully uh, they will continue to be made as they see those pieces seem to be coming together a bit for the uh, final third of the year here. But um, yeah, my, my list of the top divisions uh, mostly overlaps with yours. I figure welterweight has to be number one for both star power and depth. Um I think light heavyweight is actually my number 2 these days. Yeah. Although maybe I'm just feeling the Joe Smith fever at the moment. I don't know. <laughs> uh but yeah, I looked at a lot of the ones you mentioned. Also, I don't recall if you mentioned either 154 or 130, but those both oh, stood have out, Yeah. Yep. Um those have a good depth, a lot of young talent. 122 has a lot of intriguing guys on the way up. Um but like you, uh I'm putting heavyweight in my top three, I think, right now. You can go 10 or 15 deep with fighters I'm interested in. There's star power at the top, big personalities. I think this might be the peak of the heavyweight division since Lennox Lewis beat Holyfield Mm -hmm. and unified, and the division from that point on started to get more dull with the stars of the 90s other than Lennox all fading out. So I think, you know, what's that, 98? So best Mm -hmm. the division's been in 22 years? I'll take that
0: yeah definitely between us we've actually basically given a shout out to every division except cruiserweight <laughs> and, and cruiserweight's not bad it's not bad it's uh, Ra- Rafe not bartholomew bad. would unfriend me if i didn't say that so i needed to slip <laughs> that in there <laughs> all right that's what she said okay that will do it for another episode of showtime boxing with uh, raskin and mulvaney we will be back next week with hopefully post-fight analysis of ramirez postal and not news of a third postponement uh Hopefully, we'll have a guest on the show, uh, since it's otherwise looking like a slowish week in boxing before we build up to Showtime's very busy second half of September. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.